Welcome to 45 Forward, the beginning of the rest of your life. Each week, host Ron Roel and his guests discuss topics of interest to many listeners in their 40s and beyond, including retirement, caring for aging parents, health, lifestyle, and more. It's time to think ahead to the next half of your life, and we'll help you plan it with ease. Now, here is Ron Roel. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of 45 Forward, where our mission is to help you, our listeners, from Los Angeles to Long Island, age successfully making your second half of life even better than the first. While we hear every day about the latest twists and turns in the evolving COVID-19 pandemic, we are actually in the midst of another pandemic, a relatively silent one, the the Parkinson's pandemic. Parkinson's disease is the world's fastest growing neurological disorder, increasing in virtually every region of the world. In the US alone, the economic cost exceeds 50 billion a year, a staggering $50,000 per person with the disease. In today's episode, we talk with Dr. Ray Dorsey, professor of neurology at the University of Rochester Medical Center and co-author of a thought-provoking new book, Ending Parkinson's Disease, A Prescription for Action. As one of four leading physicians who co-author this book, Dr. Dorsey calls for a bold, comprehensive approach to help end Parkinson's called PACT, which stands for Prevent, Advocate for, Care, and Treat the Disease. He'll talk about the most promising treatments on the horizon, from immune therapies to vaccines, surgical treatments, and new developments in nutrition and microbiome research. We'll talk about the troubling use of certain pesticides and toxic chemicals linked to the disease, which particularly affect farmers, veterans, high-tech manufacturing workers, as well as the rest of us. Dr. Dorsey will also outline some of the latest advances in care, including the dramatic use increase in the use of telemedicine to treat Parkinson's patients. And he'll examine the lessons learned from other health crises from polio to AIDS to COVID-19, and how we might apply them to this pandemic. And finally, he'll give us an action plan for what the average citizen can do right now to help end Parkinson's. Parkinson's disease is not an inevitable disease that happens with age, he says. It is a preventable disease, and we need to get around to preventing people from developing it in the first place. So now let's meet today's guest, Dr. Ray Dorsey. Ray, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Ron. My pleasure to be with you. Great. Now, Ray, before we dive into our discussion about Parkinson's itself, I'd like to start just by asking you a bit about your background, how you became involved in this kind of research, and how you came to work with these three authors to put together this book. Um, so, uh, in 2017, in an in-person meeting in New York City, uh, there was a celebration of the bicentennial of Dr. James Parkinson's um, seminal description of Parkinson's disease. So, Dr. Parkinson was uh, a 61-year-old physician in London, and he was writing about a condition that he said had not been classified in the medical literature. And so in the span of 200 years, we went from a very likely extraordinarily rare disease to one that's now the world's fastest growing brain disease. My colleague, Boss Bloom, and I said, uh, well, let's write a piece on this. We called it initially the Parkinson epidemic. And our third colleague, Michael Oaken, uh, was the editor for the journal. He said, why don't you call it a pandemic? That's what I called it uh, a ways ago. And then uh, one other person at the meeting was uh, Todd Shear, who used to be the CEO of the Michael J. Fox Foundation and still an executive vice president there. And so through happenstance, some in a chance meeting, uh, we came up with the idea to write a book because the first piece uh, resonated strongly with the community. Right. And uh, there's one more thing. The real thing is uh, we were also motivated in that piece uh, called the Parkinson pandemic uh, by the action of HIV activists. So. Mm -hmm. 
you know, we're dealing with a uh, infectious disease right now that's killing and uh, harming lots of individuals. It's not the first time that we've done this in the 1980s. There was a uh, unknown uh, virus that was uh, killing large numbers of individuals, large numbers of younger individuals. And we had a muted federal response initially. And that vacuum, a group of HIV activists adopted a motto of silence equals death. And uh, for them, uh, ACT UP and others led by Larry Kramer, you know, changed the course of HIV, not only for those with HIV, but for, importantly for those without HIV and prevented thousands, millions of us from ever developing uh, that infectious disease. And we saw that the work that they had done in a great book by David France uh, uh, called How to Survive a Plague. And that really motivated us to think about what we could do for the Parkinson's community. Wow, that's, that's a good, good backstory to have. I really appreciate hearing that. Um, so, okay, so let's just talk, before we look, talk about, you have, we can talk about lots of things and we will talk about lots of things, but, but uh, just for our audience, just give us a quick synopsis, um, Ray, about what we know about the disease in terms of, you know, how it, how it affects, you know, the neurological system in the brain. So classically, the textbooks will tell you that Parkinson's disease is a brain disease that's characterized by a loss of nerve cells in the brain that produce a chemical called dopamine, and that it classically results in a tremor, usually in the hands, usually at rest, usually affecting one side more than the other, slowness in movement, stiffness, and difficulties walking or with balance. Uh, that's what the textbooks will say, and it tends to occur, the incidence, the number of new people with the disease uh, triples every decade. So your audience is people in 45 and older, so it's incidence is X at, uh, if, one, if incidence is one at 45, it'll be three at 55, nine at uh, 65, 27 uh, at 75, and keeps going on and on. Wow. Um, well, wow, yeah. So, um, so it's <laughs> yes, it's characterized. Uh, so I, I know what category I'm in. <laughs> um, so, um, so it's characterized by tremors, uh, and 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 I guess it's not clear what the causes are. I mean, there. I guess again, the textbooks would you know so talk about you know sometimes uh, specific genetic mutations, but what causes them and how they interact with various other factors, I think, is is the thing that that is really interesting that you pointed out. Yeah, so um, one, so there are some genetic causes. They're relatively rare. Um, a famous neurologist, William Gowers, wrote in the late 1800s that only about 15% of his patients have a family history of the disease, and that's largely proved out to be the case. And if you took 100 people with Parkinson's disease in the U.S., about 15, maybe 20% of them will have an identifiable genetic risk factor for the disease. Only about 1% of those individuals will have a genetic mutation that's sufficient to cause the disease. The rest will just increase their risk of developing it. Said another way, 80% will not have any identifiable genetic risk factors. So we've known for 100 years that Parkinson's disease is predominantly caused by environmental factors and led by great work by Dr. Caroline Tanner and her colleagues at UC San Francisco and hundreds of others, dozens of others. We know what are very likely to be the uh, contributing factors to Parkinson's disease. Chief among them are certain pesticides. Many pesticides are nerve toxins. They target the parts of nerve cells that we know are damaged in Parkinson's disease. When we feed some of these pesticides to laboratory animals, they develop not only the pathological features of Parkinson's disease in their brain, but they actually behave as if they have Parkinson's disease. They're slower in their movements. Hmm. There's an industrial chemical called trichloroethylene, widely used to be used to be widely used in dry cleaning, used to clean silicon wafers in, in Silicon Valley, used uh, to decaffeinate coffee in the 1970s. 
found in carpet cleaners, uh, dry cleaners, um, and many other applications. Uh, why in- increases the risk of Parkinson's by 500 percent? Wow. And then air pollution, uh, you know, the a- ambient air pollution that's around us um, in many industri- many cities, uh, caused by either factories burning uh, coal or by automobiles, it also likely contributes to Parkinson's disease. So the central thrust of our, our book is that Parkinson's is likely dictated by these environmental factors, some of which in- interact with the genetic factors. And to that extent, to the extent that we call this a man-made disease, we can we as humans can end this disease. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I'm not sure how widely that's known, you know, about the disease, the interaction with environmental factors. I did, you know, some initial reading, I think, a previous interview with you when you talked about, um, you know, starting in, you know, the, the disease starting, you know, being noticed in London in 1917. 1817. Uh, I'm sorry, 1817, right. Um, when the air pollution was so bad that, that people walked around with masks like we're doing today. Yeah, so um, people who watched uh, The Crown, right, they saw the London fog, and the London fog has little to do with weather and everything to do with air pollution. And air pollution really started to affect uh, London as early as the 1600s, but by the 1800s, uh, after we had the steam engine, you started getting uh, you know, such polluted environment in London that you couldn't even see across the street. You had to have uh, little boys carry uh, fires or torches so that people can make their way uh, through the crowded streets of London. Um, and since that time, several studies have linked air pollution uh, along with certain heavy metals that these small little tiny particles carry. And these tiny particles uh, can actually bypass our normal brain's protective mechanisms, enter in through our nose, and carry toxic compounds directly back into our brain and contribute to likely to Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's for that matter. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And I think you, you, you noted, too, that the, one of the fastest growing areas now is China, right, where there is a significant you know, pollution problem. Yeah. So if you look at the, the epidemiology of Parkinson's disease, the areas of the world that are most industrialized, like the United States and Canada, have the highest rates of Parkinson's disease. Areas that are least industrialized, like sub-Saharan Africa, have the lowest rates of disease. And areas of the world that are undergoing the most rapid industrialization, such as China and India, have the fastest increasing rates of the disease. Wow. Wow. So are people, are policymakers, you know, and I guess in terms of influencers in this country, are they aware of this or are they, I guess they're somewhat aware, but it doesn't seem to have, um, you know, caught the attention, you know, as it seems like it should, since it's, yeah, as you, as you said, it really, it's something that we can control. Yeah, I think uh, by the nature of the disease, uh, policymakers in the United States and elsewhere in, in the world are tend to be older. And so, uh, they have friends and family members who have uh, Parkinson's disease. Uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel was rumored to have Parkinson's disease. Vladimir Putin's been rumored to have Parkinson's disease. The father of Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, died with Parkinson's disease. The mother of Prime Minister Boris Johnson in England has Parkinson's disease. So um, they should be familiar uh, with uh, Parkinson's disease. Um, the reason we have uh, we had two elections of two Georgia senators uh, this you know, past November was because the outgoing senator, Johnny, Johnny Isaacson, had Parkinson's disease and chose to retire because of the disease. So uh, after having served uh, for a few years with the disease. So um, they should be aware of it. Uh, I think people are, but there's still too much silence around the disease, not enough funding for the disease. 
and not enough action to address these preventable uh, factors that are contributing to the disease. Right. And one of the other things you mentioned as preventable factors is pesticides, right? So that's another, you know, large area. So, yeah, the good news there is that uh, this year, the, uh, the EPA banned a pesticide called chlorpyrifos, uh, widely used on golf courses, used on Washington State apples, used on utility poles, fences, um, and other fruits and vegetables, and uh, they banned it. And so that's, that action is uh, going to save millions of children IQ points and going to prevent thousands of uh, people in the United States and hopefully eventually around the world from ever developing the disease. That's the good news. The bad news is that the EPA reauthorized or plans to reauthorize the use of a pesticide called Paraquat. Um, Paraquat increases the risk of Parkinson's disease by 150%. It's considered the most toxic herbicide ever created when it was developed in the 1950s. It kills the weeds that Roundup doesn't. It's been used to commit homicide and suicide and over 30 countries, including China, have banned it, uh, but the United States still permits its use. England bans it, but still exports it to Brazil, uh, Mexico, and the United States. Um, we have a chance to you know, prevent people from ever developing uh, this disease, and we can do that by banning certain pesticides that other countries have done so. And the sooner we get about to doing that, the sooner we prevent uh, thousands, if not millions, of people from ever developing this debilitating disease. Right, right. Um is there, is it just, I'm just curious as to what the explanation is from the, the EPA in terms of, you know. <laughs> you have to ask them. Their own website says one sip can kill. And they document uh, individuals who like one, an eight-year-old kid who, uh, older brother, I think, had put Paraquat in a, a soda can in the garage and the kid drank a sip and he died. Wow. Um so uh, the EPA has made this uh, determination. I'm not sure why we continue to allow a pesticide uh, that's been banned by other countries, including China, Syria, the United Arab Emirates, and uh, dozens of others uh, to continue to be used in the United States. Um, you know, a few of us drive cars from the 1950s and none of us would step in an airplane from the 1950s. <laughs> I don't yeah. think it's uh, unreasonable to expect that chemists can come up with safer alternatives uh, than uh, Paraquat. Right, right, right. Uh, wow, that's that's amazing. Um, yeah, and, and I guess some of this stuff uh, ends up seeping into the the water system. Um, uh, you mentioned too that you know it it's this cleanser is used in Silicon Valley. It's uh, used in yeah, lots of so industrial this, places. Uh, this doesn't just affect farmers, although farmers are at increased risk for developing uh, Parkinson's disease, and it doesn't just affect people who work with uh, the chemical trichloroethylene, although those who do are at, uh, have a five times higher risk of developing the disease. It affects all of us. So 40 million Americans uh, get their water from uh, wells, private wells, which aren't regulated by the Safe Drinking Water Act. Those wells are uh, in rural areas subject to contamination by pesticides that uh, are washed off from nearby farms. And so you can be drinking either as a child or as an adult uh, pesticide-laced uh, uh, water and never know about it. Similarly, you can be inhaling pesticides that are sprayed in areas near where you live. Uh, this chemical called trichloroethylene, widely used in degreasing, contaminates up to 30% of groundwater in the United States. And so people could be... Uh, drinking that uh, contaminated groundwater or TCE like radon can evaporate from the underlying soil and groundwater into your home, your schools, or your workplaces. And you could be breathing it in for years, never knowing that you're uh, breathing in air that's increasing your risk of Parkinson's disease and cancer. Right. And then I guess the last area is 
with veterans, I guess the interaction with some of the things that they may have ingested or been exposed to, starting with Agent Orange, right? Yes. And so, you know, General Colin Powell, who just recently died, he died with multiple myeloma and with Parkinson's disease, both of which have been linked to Agent Orange and other pesticides that he and others uh, sprayed uh, in Vietnam. In addition to Agent Orange, you know, veterans are at increased risk for head trauma, which can increase your risk for Parkinson's disease. And trichloroethylene has contaminated numerous military bases in the United States, including um, most infamously, uh, Camp, the Marine Base Camp Lejeune in Jacksonville, North Carolina, where up to a million veterans, Marines, their family members, civilians, and their children were exposed to levels of TCE and another chemical at levels up to 3,000 uh, times that are safe from the 1950s to the 1980s. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, certainly I think people are aware in general of, you know, the exposure to Agent Orange in, in Vietnam, but I don't think they've really linked it to Parkinson's, at least in, in, the, in the public sphere of, you know, people's aware and general awareness of how these might have affected it. Nor, I, I wasn't aware, to be honest, with the Camp Jejun uh, uh, exposure as well. So, um, well, I, I'm glad it's, it's coming to public light and, and we're making these uh, links to increase risk factors. So, um, so I think, uh, Ray, we, we have a lot more to talk about. Uh, I, I want to get into look, talking about some of the promising treatments now and on the horizon, uh, but we're going to take a short break. Um, uh, I just want people to know uh, there's much more to come with Dr. Ray Dorsey on uh, ending, all, uh, ending par- Parkinson's. So don't go anywhere. We'll be back in, after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. A brave heart is anyone with the courage to be of service to others. If you have that courage, then Bravehearts Radio with Brian Reinbold is for you. Even if you aren't yet, you'll want to still tune in to get inspired, create your own story to share, and change your life for the better. Listen to the stories of service and courage shared by amazing guests and your input too. Listen for Brave Hearts Radio, Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember, doing good anywhere does good everywhere. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Planning for college? Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, a former admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania, and featuring her fellow admissions and college finance experts from Bright Horizons College Coach. The show shares what colleges are really looking for and how to highlight your hard-won achievements for the best chance of success. New episodes air every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're 
You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks, where we're talking today with Dr. Ray Dorsey, the co-author of Ending Parkinson's Disease, about what he calls a silent pandemic today. Before we continue our conversation, I wanted to mention that you can find out more about Dr. Dorsey and his work by going to, I believe your website is endingpd.org. Is that right, doctor? Yes, endingpd.org. And if anyone like a copy of the book and they can't afford it, they can just email us at info at endingpd.org. Just with their mailing address, we'll send them a copy for free if they can't afford it. Uh, info at endingpd.org. Right. And I, I just wanted, since you mentioned that, I want to also mention, I think you've told me that the proceeds from the sales of the book will go toward your research, right? Yeah. So all the authors, all of us, four of us have, are devoting all of our proceeds efforts to help end Parkinson's. Great. Great. Thank you, Doc. So uh, before the break, we were talking about a lot of the um, causes of Parkinson's, the interaction with environmental causes. I wanted to now shift to just have you talk a little bit about um, some of the promising treatments, either right now or on the horizon. Yeah, so I, let me back up just a second. I know you do a lot of work in the Alzheimer's community. And it's kind of odd that we have 6.2 million Americans uh, with Alzheimer's disease and we have no highly effective treatments for it. And we have about 1.2 million Americans who've been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and our most effective medication for it is over 50 years old. Wow. Um, so, you know, we should not find that acceptable. I, I don't think there's another disease that affects more people for which we don't have highly effective treatments. And I can't think of another condition for which uh, other maybe than some antibiotics for which the most effective medication is uh, 50 years old. Um, so we need uh, better treatments uh, both for Alzheimer's disease and uh, for Parkinson's disease. There are some uh, that are in, in the pipeline. There are some uh, me medicines that target uh, some of the genetic causes of Parkinson's disease, including a genetic mutation called LARP2. Mm -hmm. uh, that affects about, you know, two to 3% of Americans with Parkinson's disease and may also that that gene encodes for a protein that might also be uh, abnormal in other people with Parkinson's disease. And then uh, just like we have some immune therapies for COVID-19, we have some immune therapies in development for Parkinson's disease that target a misfolded protein. It's called alpha-synuclein and that's found in uh, Parkinson's disease. And the hope just as, just as we have uh, some immune therapies that are in development for Alzheimer's disease, including one that's recently been improved, that we can uh, have some immune therapies that can uh, target the misfolded protein that spreads uh, throughout the brain um, in individuals with uh, Parkinson's disease. But we need a whole lot more. And I also uh, put out there, it's a whole lot easier to prevent a disease than to treat a disease. It's a whole lot easier not to get COVID uh, than it is uh, to treat COVID. It's a whole lot easier not to get breast cancer than it is to treat breast cancer. And it's a whole lot easier not to get Parkinson's disease than it is to treat it. Right. And, and one of the things, as you mentioned, so I, I'm a fairly active um, volunteer doing community education for the Alzheimer's Association um, where I live on Long Island. Uh, and it, it, I found it interesting that some of the, uh, the things that uh, the non-pharmacological interventions for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's are similar. So exercise, nutrition, some of these things seem to have a benefit uh, for both of these uh, disorders. Yeah. So if you want to sweat, it's a good, uh, Parkinson's is a good reason to do so. So uh, vigorous exercise in your uh, 30s, 40s, 50s and, and beyond can decrease your risk of ever developing Parkinson's by about 
Wow. Uh, in addition, uh, vigorous exercise can, is uh, actually uh, quite helpful for people with the disease. Um, a Mediterranean diet, uh, low in uh, animal products, uh, high in fruits and vegetables can decrease the risk of ever developing uh, Parkinson's and can be beneficial for the people with the disease. Protecting your head, both for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease is important. So if you like to bike or ski, wear a helmet uh, when doing so. And if you have uh, Parkinson's disease, you should limit your exposure to pesticides uh, and ensure that your water uh, is clean. So uh, since writing the book, I, I buy a lot more organic. I wash all my fruits and vegetables with a little uh, soap and water, and I put a water filter on our water at home. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So there are lots of these, I guess they're called lifestyle interventions, which are important, but they're, you know, they're, they're valuable and uh well, they don't cost much. <laughs> they don't cost much, and they cost a lot if we don't. You know, if we as a society just decide that we want to keep using paraquat on corn, soybeans, and cotton, we're going to pay a very high price for it, $50,000 per person per year is the economic burden of Parkinson's disease. And we should make sure that if we want to pay that price, that individuals aren't paying the price, but the companies that are producing these chemicals are the ones paying the price for it. We don't need right. to be subsidizing them. Right. Right. The other thing you've talked about is just some advances in care models, you know, um, and, you know, that support both people with with the disease also and caregivers and, and those who work with them, um, especially you've talked a lot about telemedicine, which is an area that you've been very active in in, uh, in engaged with. Yeah, if you think about it, it's kind of odd that we as generally healthy clinicians ask patients to come see us on our terms when we should be seeing patients on their terms. We should be stop asking patients to come see us and we should bring care to them. And uh, telemedicine is just one tool uh, uh, to do that. My colleagues and I have been doing that since 2007, initially bringing care to people in nursing homes in upstate New York and then um, and directly into their homes and into satellite clinics. And COVID-19 has uh, demonstrated the immense potential of this adoption of, because Congress uh, uh, started, because Congress and Medicare started paying for telemedicine visits, we saw a 100-fold adoption in uh, telemedicine visits among Medicare beneficiaries in the span of four weeks. The largest transformation in healthcare delivery happened uh, in about April of uh, 2020 when a hundredfold increase in adoption of telemedicine visits, such that I think uh, half of Medicare beneficiaries have benefited from care received via telemedicine. Those changes are temporary. They're tied to the public health emergency at present. We need to make sure that Congress acts to make those changes permanent so that anyone anywhere can receive the care that they need for Parkinson's disease and a wide range of other conditions. Yeah, it seems to me a tremendous uh, cost saver, but I, but I think in many cases you're right in terms of, you know, and I guess it's sort of ironic, it's telemedicine, but it is, you know, going to um, back to a notion that was, uh, and some of which uh, translates into actual visits. I, I've noticed a number of uh, physicians today are sort of special, creating specialties in, in home delivered care. You know, the old uh, <laughs> home doctor visits. Um. Yeah, the, the, and the house call was the dominant means of providing care as late as the 1930s. Forty percent of patient-physician interactions uh, occurred into the home. And uh, telemedicine isn't just really focused on increasing the cost of care. It's about fulfilling the mission, vision of Medicare. So when Medicare was created in 1965, its goal was to ensure that all older Americans had access to health care at a time when only half of them did. 
And um, many people don't happen to live near Rochester, New York, or New York, or Chicago, or happen to live near a center where there's lots of Parkinson's specialists. Um, we need to enable uh, patients to receive the care where they live, regardless if they live in Springfield, Illinois, or Utica, New York, or Long Island, or in Savannah, Georgia, or Greensboro, Alabama. And we need to make sure that they can be able to receive the care that they, they need. They paid taxes for the last 50 years for that explicit purpose. And telemedicine is a powerful means for them to be able to receive the care that they need uh, in their homes. Right, right. Now, certainly, I, I understand that there are some circumstances, and I'm an example of this, where uh, I think it was around um, March or April of 2020, yes, just as the, you know, as the pandemic started to pick up steam, where I had, um, you know, a serious inflammation condition. And um, uh, so initially, I, I did have, uh, uh, you know, an, an on-site visit with a rheumatologist. But, but once I did that, you know, was the, there are some times when the physician needs to be there with and they, they need to be able to, you know, examine you and touch you. But once they did that, once they, my doctor did that, then she and I, then our subsequent visits were telemedicine. I mean, she basically had done the exam. She knew what I was talking about. You know, if I held up my hand or pointed, she knew what I was talking about. So I didn't need to physically go to the, um, her office after that. And it was very effective. It saved us both a lot of time and saying, I, I got the, the, the kind of care that I needed. And I think especially for, for your area of Parkinson's, getting patients to facilities is, is an ordeal sometimes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, I once went to UC San Francisco. And if you want to have Parkinson's and you want to try to go to the University of California, San Francisco, good luck. I had trouble getting in and out of the parking lot. Now, I'm a relatively healthy guy. I can only imagine what it's like for Parkinson's disease. Uh, you know, we have not designed care around the needs of people with Parkinson's disease. My co-author, Boss Bloom, and I said that we couldn't design uh, our care for Parkinson's disease much worse than we do. Um, I like your idea about, you know, some combination of in-person and virtual visits. It works, would work great for some people. But some people can't drive. People with Parkinson's disease have impaired driving ability. They have overburdened caregivers. And they have limited financial means. And we've made uh, care extremely inconvenient for them. And telemedicine is a tool, not a panacea, to address some of the inequities and um, shortcomings in our current care models. Right, right. So, I, so the takeaway you mentioned is that at least one immediate thing is to extend, you know, the the emergency use of, of telemedicine that we have through Medicare. Right. So that's there are 50 million Medicare beneficiaries. They pay taxes for the last 50 years to get care. Uh, that care should be dictated by their needs, not by the preferences of hospitals and doctors. And uh, if, if your listeners make their voices heard, tell their Congress members and senators to ensure that the Medicare's coverage of telemedicine is made permanent so that they and future generations can benefit from receiving care on their terms instead of doctors and hospitals' terms, all of us will be better. Right, right. I guess there's a term now that's uh, called, you know, patient-centered <laughs> medicine, but this is what it's all about. You know, this is what it should be all about in the first place. Oh. Yeah patient-centric approaches. Yeah. So, um, so let's, uh, we have a couple minutes before the break, but I, I just wanted to sort of shift a little bit to, um, you know, research funding. And you've noted that it's, it's really lagging behind um, $50 billion a year, $50,000 per person with the disease. Half of the healthcare costs are, are half the costs are in healthcare, half in the costs of lost wages due to disability, early retirement, excuse me, and financial burden on caregivers. And, and that, you know, the cost of Parkinson's and Alzheimer's together are going to be astronomical if we don't 
really make some progress. So I mentioned the HIV and uh, how a group of activists made their voices heard and turned uh, federal funding from zero dollars to now three billion dollars per year uh, for uh, HIV. HIV affects roughly the same number of Americans as Parkinson's disease, and the NIH budget for Parkinson's disease is about $250 million, so one-tenth of what it is for HIV. And that HIV funding has not only uh, accelerated the development of new therapies for, uh, for HIV, it's prevented thousands of millions around the world from ever developing HIV, probably one of our most robust investments in healthcare uh, that we've ever made. Um, at the same time, the number of Americans uh, has increased uh, over the last decade by 35%. NIH funding for, a, for Parkinson's disease adjusted for inflation has actually decreased. I can't think of another condition for where, where that's the case. If we don't have an operation warp speed, as my colleague Michael Oaken and co-author uh, has called for, we're going to uh, suffer with a large number of people getting Parkinson's disease. 200 more will be diagnosed today. 100 more will die. Uh, with the disease today, $250 million for a condition that has an economic burden of $50 billion uh, is not going to get it done. Right, right. And I think that, um, well, certainly, I, I think you know, one of the issues is that uh, there is there's not enough um, uh, public exposure to this. I think, you know, I think people are aware, and again, from my own experience, unfortunately, I mean, you know, it's Michael J. Fox, you know, he's sort of the, for me, the public face that you see, you know, he's, his foundation, you know, he's still continued to work after, even after he was diagnosed. So he's brought some awareness, but uh, we need much more. Um, now, are there any, are, where's the research taking place? What are the, so you're at Rochester, where, where, where are the, where's the major research taking place? Or? So the research takes place at a large number of research centers uh, throughout the United States. Uh, just a word on Michael J. Fox, you know, it's hard to have Parkinson's disease. It's hard to have Parkinson's disease and to be the face of it. You know, uh, he's made the biggest difference in Parkinson's disease in this century. His foundation, uh, thanks to him, has raised over a billion dollars uh, for research funding. But that man cannot do it alone. Right. There's 1.2 million Americans who have Parkinson's disease, and he's Canadian. I mean, he needs a lot <laughs> more help. Uh you know, Davis Finney, Brian Grant, uh, others are making their voices heard and lending uh, their voices. But we, if we stay silent, if we don't follow the page book from the HIV activists, if we stay silent, we're going to have a lot of needless and preventable suffering. Uh, one of my patients is caring for her husband with Parkinson's disease. And she said, this is no way to spend your golden years. And so if you don't want to spend your golden years with Parkinson's disease, if you don't want to spend your golden years caring for someone with Parkinson's disease, I mean, you need to make your voices heard. You need to tell your congressmen and representatives to, uh, to ban a pesticide like Paraquat, ban the chemical trichloroethylene, which contaminates up to 30% of groundwater in the, in the United States, and increase research funding for Parkinson's disease. And make sure that research funding is not only focused on developing new treatments, but that research funding is focused on preventing people from ever getting the disease in the first place. I, you know, I just assume not get uh, prostate cancer. I don't want chemotherapy. I don't want to be cured of prostate cancer. I don't want to get it in the first place. And we can prevent people from get, getting HIV. We can prevent people from getting lung cancer. And we can prevent people from getting uh, Parkinson's disease. We just need to make our voices heard and end the silence around this disease and many others. I hear you with that. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, I, I, one of the things I think that I've often felt is that, you know, we don't uh, focus on health care. We focus on sick care. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that some, sometimes I'm, I'm a little bit uh, skeptical in the sense that, well, 
we focus on that because that's we make more money doing that. Yes. You know? um, Don't be skeptical. That's exactly why. So American medicine is very good at going from uh, disease to treatment. But what I want your 1.2 million Americans with Parkinson's to think is disease and why? Why do I have Parkinson's disease? If we don't answer why I have Parkinson's or breast cancer or heart disease, until we answer the question why, we're only resigning future generations to get the disease. If we start asking why, we will find answers. We will find answers for why we have uh, people, 1.2 million Americans have uh, Parkinson's disease, why women, one in eight, one in 10 women have uh, breast cancer. We'll find answers and we'll prevent future generations from ever developing diseases in the first place. Right. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, especially for my audience, 45 and older and even younger, um, as you reach that age, I mean, it, it, you know, you can lead a, a terrific uh, second half of life, you know, each chapter active and vigorous, as long as you have your health, you know, and that's, <laughs> that's the, the wild card. Even when people start planning for retirement, you know, it's like, well, uh, you know, when you, when you have to think, so much of your retirement costs have to sh- be shifted to healthcare. Then, then what kind of retirement are we having? You know, and I, I think that this is uh, so. It's critical that this that we that health is considered as part of the equation. It is, it is the equation. Uh, it's hard to enjoy life uh, if you spend the last fifteen to twenty years of your life with Parkinson's disease. You can still live a full, uh, a full and healthy, can live a full life, but it's much harder to do it when you have a debilitating uh, disease that robs you of your independence. Right, right. So we're going to take a, a, a more of a look at that in our last segment about uh, uh, digging in deeper to your approaches to help and to Alzheimer's and what we can do today. So, but uh, so we're going to take another quick break, uh, Ray, and uh, and for you folks out there, uh, don't don't go anywhere. We you won't want to miss this last segment with Ray. We still have much more to cover. So we'll be back. Don't go anywhere. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Want to play the ponies and win? At Winning Ponies, we go inside and behind the scenes with the top jockeys, trainers, and handicappers. The Winning Ponies Radio Show with John Englehart, racing's regular guy, is the perfect complement to the Winning Ponies handicapping website. Catch us live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Win prizes just for calling in. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Tune in every Friday to get your weekend kickoff early. Join the legendary G. Keith Alexander for What's Hot Harlem America. The flagship show of the new Harlem America Digital Network has something for everyone. From the latest in entertainment to empowerment, 
health and wellness, and more. We'll bring you a variety of fresh viewpoints, voices, and ideas. What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander can be heard every Friday at 1 p.m. in New York and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward. Welcome back, folks. We're talking today with Dr. Ray Dorsey, the co-author of Ending Parkinson's Disease. On uh, our first two segments, we talked quite a bit about the disease itself, some of its causes, the links to environmental factors, and, and some about the treatments. And we began to talk about what we can do about it. So I wanted to take this last segment to dig more deeply into that in terms of what can we do as average citizens? Ray's mentioned a little bit, but you mentioned a little bit before, but you've also, you know, that we need active participation partnerships. So how can we talk about your approach? Let's talk about this um, PACT approach of yours. Yeah, so we outlined the book, uh, 25 Things That Individuals Can Do. We even uh, color the pages gray in the book. So if your uh, readers want to get a copy of the book on Amazon, if they can't afford it, email us at info at ndpd.org. They can see it. The first is uh, we need to ban uh, the chemicals that are uh, fueling the rise of Parkinson's disease. And the two most egregious ones are one, the pesticide called Paraquat, sprayed on still sprayed. Use of this Paraquat has doubled in just the last five years. Um, despite uh, over 30 countries banning it. And this chemical called trichloroethylene, which some countries in Western Europe have banned, uh, but is found in over half of Superfund sites uh, throughout the United States. And the way we can make our voices heard is to join a global grassroots organization called the PD Avengers. Larry Gefford, who's from Ohio and is now lives in Canada, formed this uh, global grassroots organization called the PD Avengers, pdavengers.com. There are over 4,000 members strong from 70 different countries. Um, and you can join them to make your voices heard. And that's a grassroots organization uh, created and run by people with the disease. And we need a lot more Avengers out there so that uh, the voices can be heard from the community and so that we can prevent future generations from ever developing a Parkinson's disease. You know, as a neurologist, as a physician, I can think of few things uh, more rewarding or more worthwhile than to get rid of diseases so that future generations are free from them. And uh, Previous generations have gotten rid of polio, essentially, for us. Uh, previous generations have fought uh, against uh, polio. Previous generations have fought against drunk driving. And a lot of us are living today and have friends and family members who are living today and unharmed because of their efforts. We need to do the same thing for Parkinson's disease so future generations do not have to bear the burden of what is now the world's fastest growing brain disease. Right, right. And anything in terms of supporting new kinds of care models? But- so we talked uh, We talked on the care front about making sure that uh, Medicare makes a coverage of telemedicine uh, permanent. We right. also need to find other uh, care models that enable people to age in place and live in their homes for as long as possible. Hos- possible. Uh, 88% of Americans want to live uh, in their homes uh, uh, as long and as independently as possible. And currently we have very limited means for doing that. We've seen the shortcomings of institutional nursing home care in the setting of the COVID-19 pandemic. We should be mindful of that and think about ways to enable that people to live either in their homes or their own communities for longer portions of their life. 
Yeah, I think that is critical. I think that I think that is you know uh, catching up a bit. I think there's you know I know in, where we are in New York State, there's been more funding released in terms of providing um, you know uh, help in should be in terms of uh, home care. Um, <clears throat> and I think some of that was actually in the recent bill that uh, uh, President Biden uh, just signed was increasing uh, some coverage of uh, home care uh, for uh, the for home care for either through Medicare or Medicaid. Yeah, and I think as you pointed out, there, there's it's a two prong benefit. <clears throat> Certainly, there are cost efficiencies and you know keeping people at home as long as possible, as long as it's feasible and medically supportable. <clears throat> but it's just it's it's the the efficacy and the of the care itself. It's not just the cost. I mean, you get better care, and I think that <clears throat> you've noticed that there are a lot of people who can, especially dealing with Parkinson's, <clears throat> who can help support this in the home. Right, I mean, the physical therapists. Um, other kinds of, you know, clinicians who come into the home. Uh, it's it's better for the, the Parkinson's patient as well, right? Not to travel and see these people. <clears throat> yeah, and less risk of infection and uh, more, more community support and more social support. And we need to provide additional respite care for uh, caregivers, you know, who bear an enormous burden uh, of disease. 35 million Americans care for an older adult in, in this country. And the number one reason for that are brain diseases. <clears throat> We need to provide additional resources to support them. Right, right. So what is your, uh, is your dream basically, it's to end Parkinson's, right? That's your, that's your goal. Listen, we've done it before. I mean, no one's sitting around worrying about smallpox. No one's sitting around worrying about polio. Uh, few of us worry about our teenagers. Uh, we still worry about our teenagers. But we worry a little <laughs> bit less about them getting hit by a drunk driver. But we worry about that less because of that organizations like Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Uh, and others. So we can get rid of diseases. Uh, and uh, if we get rid of diseases, uh, then we can turn our, we can save a lot of money and turn our attention to other diseases and start getting rid of disease instead of uh, adding new ones uh, like COVID-19. Right, right, right. Yeah, as, as you mentioned, uh, the, the, there's no cure for polio, but it, it can be prevented and we've done yes. that. Yeah. Yes, right, right. So, um so what else can you we uh, we talk about? Are there things that I've that you'd like to talk about uh, in terms of your own research or uh, what? Oh, well, you mentioned to me earlier during one of breaks that um, you have a, a sequel to your book coming out. <laughs> I say we're in the early stages of well, writing, even so, even so. writing a book. I think uh, <clears throat> it struck a nerve, and uh, I think people want to learn more about these environmental causes of the disease. And we think some of these environmental causes are not just fueling the rise of Parkinson's disease, but are fueling the rise of Alzheimer's disease. One of the big uh, uh, factors fueling the rise of Alzheimer's disease is air pollution. Um, so I alluded to that our brain's really good at keeping infections and toxins uh, that are circulating in our blood from entering our brain. But there's a front door to our brain, uh, and that front door is called our nose. And um, many of these uh, pesticides we inhale, trichloroethylene, uh, this decreasing agent we inhale, and air pollution uh, we inhale. And so anyone who lives in LA has seen smog, and in that smog are these tiny little uh, particles, they're called particulate matter, pieces of dirt, uh, dirt and soot. And uh, th those dirt and soot, uh, many of them get caught in the hairs in your nose or hairs in, in your throat, and you cough them out or sneeze them out. But some of them are really, really, really tiny. And they bypass our normal filtration mechanisms and can enter in through our nose and uh, reach our smell centers in the brain. And then from uh, smell centers in the brain spread to other regions of the brain. 
And these small little tiny particles have some dangerous hitchhikers on them, mm. including toxic metals like lead and iron and platinum that can then uh, enter and damage uh, different parts of the brain. And it's worth uh, noting that uh, Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease, the first part of the brain that's affected is the smell center uh, or olfactory bulb, suggesting that these diseases actually may not begin the brain. They may begin outside. They may begin even outside of, uh, of humans and, and in our environment. And the sooner we clean up our air, the sooner we get rid of these pesticides, the sooner we get rid of trichloroethylene, this, uh, the fewer of us will be uh, affected by these uh, uh, brain diseases. Yeah. Have there been any kind of comparative studies just looking at different areas of the country or other countries where there's pollution and non-pollution, just comparing the Yeah. Incidents? So I, I, as I told you at the outset for Parkinson's disease, the, the evidence is pretty good. Um, you know, our, our estimates are crude, but they they're tell us a story about the most industrialized parts of the world are have the highest rates of the disease and the least industrialized parts of the world have the lowest rates of disease. And India and China, which are undergoing the mass rapid industrialization, have the fastest increasing rates of the disease. One country in the world where the incidence appears to be actually decreasing the number of people uh, affected, adjusted for age is decreasing is the Netherlands, where my co-author Boss Bloom is from. They have among the cleanest air uh, in all of Europe. They've uh, long since banned trichloroethylene. They've uh, banned many pesticides. And so when you look at the levels of pesticides, some of these dissolve in your fat. You can measure fat, uh, measure the pesticide levels in the fat. They are lower. So we've actually seen some early signals of success in some areas of the world um, when we change our behaviors. And if we change our behaviors for the, uh, along like Netherlands has, uh, I think we're going to see fewer people affected by these diseases. If you take a step back, every society creates its own diseases. And, you know, mm. for us, you know, we created lung cancer. Lung cancer almost simply did not exist in 1900 America. People just didn't die of lung cancer because no one had lung cancer. It wasn't until the advent of cigarettes uh, that we saw a rise uh, 25 years later in the number of people with lung cancer. We get rid of smoking. We get rid of a large portion of of individuals uh, with lung cancer. We get rid of air pollution, we get rid of a lot of uh, lung cancer, we get rid of a lot of heart disease. And I think we're gonna get rid of a lot of uh, Alzheimer's and uh, Parkinson's disease. Yeah, yeah. I think obviously it was just a too short a period really, but I think that certainly uh, at the onset of the pandemic, you know, when we really were shut down for a while, um, people did notice fairly quickly, you know, the, the decrease in air pollution in LA, right? and and. People are like, whoa, yeah, I can see. Cleanest air uh, ever recorded uh, in history. Uh, conversely, when we had the fires in the West, uh, the most polluted city in the world became uh, Denver, Colorado. Yeah. So if you want to talk about man-made diseases, you know, we're creating a, a lot of this. And uh, you don't need a, a pandemic to reduce air pollution in Paris, uh, France. They have a day where they don't drive cars and levels of noxious gas in, in Paris drop by 40%. Air pollution is very, very, very tractable. If we change our behavior, we'll see almost immediate changes in the level of air pollution. We'll prevent children from ever getting asthma. We'll prevent people from getting lung cancer. We'll prevent people from ever dying from heart attacks. We'll prevent people from ever getting Parkinson's disease. And we'll prevent people from ever getting Alzheimer's disease. It's on us to act. And we right. can see changes in short periods of time. Right, right. Yeah, we're making very small steps. I guess there's a car-free day in this country, too. But just a day. I mean, <laughs> it's a little more than that. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, any any more words about? I, I know that we have uh, uh, in terms of what people can do. They can. I just want to mention again. Uh, you can go to uh, endingpd.org 
um, uh, your organization. And if they go to the website, they can donate it too, right? They can they can donate on our website. Uh, and we have a Parkinson's project, uh, which we are focused on identifying uh, the cause of uh, uh, Parkinson's disease. We think this chemical trichloroethylene TCE mm-hmm. um, is found in, uh, I told you, half of Superfund sites in the United States, found in 15 in Silicon Valley alone, I think 12 on a seven-mile stretch of the 101 freeway uh, in uh, Northern California. It's found in thousands of sites uh, just in the state of Michigan alone. And uh, we found a site 15 minutes from where I live in Rochester, New York, where people were con- uh, drinking uh, water from a spring that was contaminated uh, with TCE and uh, was leading to a high rate of brain cancer in the community. And at least one individual had Parkinson's disease. Wow. Um, so we're investigating a cluster of people with uh, Parkinson's disease uh, in Rochester, New York, that we think may be due to this uh, chemical that's been widely used by dry cleaners. And, you know, it's kind of crazy that we're uh, using chemicals to enable us to have dry cleaning so we don't shrink <laughs> our clothes. And this is fueling the rise of cancer, leukemia, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, renal cell carcinoma, kidney cancer, liver cancer, and uh, Parkinson's disease. And we stop using this chemical, we can prevent people from getting these cancers, including children, and prevent people from getting uh, Parkinson's disease. And that's what we're using uh, some of our funds that we're raising through the Parkinson's project to identify these causes and eventually to eliminate them. Right. Uh, sooner we eliminate them, the sooner uh, people we yeah. live in a world that's free of Parkinson's. Yeah. Do we have, are, are there substitutes for the kinds of chemicals that dry cleaners are using? Yeah. I told you that pesticide was created in the 1950s. Trichloroethylene was created in the 1920s. Wow. Uh, so I think a century of a, of a chemical is enough uh, that there are companies <laughs> that even a- advertise uh, safer alternatives uh, to it. There are dry cleaners that are using safer alternatives to trichloroethylene and its related chemicals. Uh, I think we can certainly over a hundred years come up with safer chemicals. I'm with you on that. <laughs> wow. Well, I really appreciate your being on, Ray. Uh, it's been a very valuable, very informative discussion. I know we can still keep talking more about it, and, and we'll have you back. Well, it, it may be a little bit before your second book comes out, but we'll, we'll, we'll have you back and perhaps bring along some of your colleagues. Yeah, uh, but I, go ahead. Yeah. I'll just say that, you know, uh, generations before us got rid of polio. A generation before us uh, changed the course of HIV. Why don't we be the generation that changes the course of Parkinson's disease and prevents millions of people, both in the United States and from around the world, from ever developing this debilitating disease? We know, we knew, we know how to if we make our air cleaner, if we make our water cleaner, and we make our food uh, cleaner, uh, we can do that uh, and not only derive benefits from reducing Parkinson's disease, but a wide range of other conditions as well. Yeah. I hear you. I appreciate that. That's a worthwhile mission, and I will support that. So, folks, uh, uh, once again, and to tell your friends if they missed my conversation with uh, Dr. Ray Dorsey today, you can still listen to it as a podcast on voiceamerica.com. Just search my show, 45 Forward, and find it on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or go to my website, rowellresources.com, and click on the 45 Forward tab, and you can uh, listen you tell your friends they can listen to Ray on that there as well. Uh, so, folks, be sure to join me next Monday, 12 noon Pacific, uh, 3 p.m. Eastern time, when I'll be talking with Howard Schneider, the founding dean of the Stony Brook School of Communication and Journalism, about his long and enterprising career in the news media, the changes he's seen on the way, including his uh, groundbreaking course on news literacy. So, folks, until then, keep moving forward, 45 forward. <music> 
Thank you for tuning in to 45 Forward. Please join your host, Ron Roel, for another great show next Monday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We wish you a great week.